Hello and welcome to this week's edition of the Glasgow Times News Podcast, normally recorded in our studio at the Bishop Briggs Media Centre, currently recorded from our volunteers' homes. To keep in touch with us, use our social media platforms, Facebook, Instagram and Twitter, which are all at Q and Review. That's C-U-E-A-N-D-R-E-V-I-E-W. Or get in touch via information at qandreview.com. That's information at C-U-E-A-N-D-R-E-V-I-E-W dot com. Please like and share our podcast and give us any constructive feedback. From the Glasgow Times, Thursday the 11th of November 2021, from the news section, Glasgow City Centre new car-free zone announced by Caroline Wilson. A new car-free zone in Glasgow City Centre has been announced by Council Leader Susan Aitken as part of a long-term strategy to give public spaces back to the people. The area will be created over the next five years and will stretch from George Square to Hope Street across Argyll Street and up to Cathedral Street. The Council Leader said £30 billion will be spent over the next 10 years to help achieve an ambitious target of net zero living by 2030. She said the council had already taken some tough decisions around pollution and congestion, including Scotland's first low emission zone, LEZ, and wanted to take this a step further. She said, Over the coming days, we were to announce that we have designated a core of our historic city centre, from George Square over to Hope Street, where Central Station is, from Cathedral Street to the north of Argyll Street to the south and work towards that being a space entirely free of private cars over the next five years, obviously with caveats for disabled access. This core of Glasgow City Centre will be given entirely to public transport and to people moving actively, said Ms Aitken. It's a big step and we don't underestimate the challenge of making that transition from what has been far too long a private car dominated city centre. It is something that will have to be delivered in partnership with city centre businesses, which is why we will do it incrementally over the next five years or so. But I think it's the kind of ambition that we have to demonstrate. We have to move beyond doing this partially and doing it on a bigger scale. We need new ideas, a new vision and collaborations to create that better and sustainable life that we envision for everyone in Glasgow. European cities with large, car-free areas in their centres include Brussels, Copenhagen and Munich. In Oslo, most on-street parking has been replaced with street furniture, like benches and mini-parks, as well as bike lanes and bigger pavements. Though some businesses feared a loss of trade, the city centre is said to have reported a 10% rise in footfall after the reduction measures. In northern Spain, the city of Pontevedra banned cars from its 300,000 square metre medieval centre in the early 2000s, leading to a 70% drop in CO2 emissions. Ms Aitken made the announcement during an event today, which aims to promote the leading role city must play in the climate emergency. She said Glasgow was already taking forward major initiatives, including the rollout of the Avenues programme, which is redesigning city centre streets to promote active travel, and has transferred the lower part of Socky Hall Street. We've already taken some tough decisions around pollution and congestion, including Scotland's first low emission zone, which will remove all but the greenest vehicles by 2023, she said. Our Spaces for People project was a major response to COVID 
as the city reopened after lockdown to reprioritise public space and give it to people rather than cars. Phase 1 of Glasgow's low emissions zone applies to local services buses only. However, all vehicles entering the city centre zone will be required to meet the required emission standard to avoid a penalty unless the vehicle is exempt when Phase 2 is enforced from June 1st, 2023. Hisashi Kubuyama, Federation of Small Businesses Development Manager for Glasgow, said it was important that the council genuinely engages with city centre firms as the plans are progressed. He said some businesses might have concerns about staff travel or deliveries. He said, Glasgow City Centre is taking a huge economic shock in the last couple of years. And even before the Covid crisis began, many of the main streets in Scotland's biggest city had seen better days, thanks to several large fires and changes in shopping habits. That's why it's so important that the council works in partnership with local businesses as it develops transport plans for the future. Some city firms might welcome moves to reduce car traffic if it encourages more locals into the centre or comes with a dramatic improvement to public transport. Other businesses might have worries about deliveries or staff travel patterns. No matter, civic decision makers have a duty to listen to local firms, take on board fresh ideas or alternative suggestions. Everyone wants Glasgow City Centre to remain a great place to do business, but to do that, the council will need to genuinely engage with local firms. It comes after an investigation by The Ferret found almost a third of Scotland's streets have a higher levels of toxic particle air pollution than they did before the COVID-19 pandemic. The appalling findings show the levels of air pollution caused by small particles known as a particulate matter 10, PM10, and largely due to traffic pollution, increased by 31% of average readings taken this year when compared with data from 2019. The readings looked at levels of two of the most common pollutants, nitrogen dioxide and PM10, which can both have serious health implications, particularly for those with underlying health conditions. Professional air quality data from 2021 suggests that Edinburgh Salamander Street is breaching legal PM10 limits so far this year, to an even greater extent than it was the case in 2019. Levels of nitrogen dioxide, which comes mostly from exhaust fumes, fell in many of Scotland's most polluted streets when compared with data from 2019. Council said they showed air quality management plans were working. Glasgow's Hope Street was the only one still breaching legal limits in the 2021 data under this measure. Prior to 2020, it had broken legal air pollution limits for nine consecutive years. However, the six-month average in 2021 was lower than in any year apart from 2020 for a decade. And that article was by Caroline Wilson. From the Glasgow Times, Thursday the 11th of November 2021, from the news section... Man dies after falling from a high-rise building in Glasgow. Report by Lauren Brownlee. A man has died after falling from a high-rise building in Knightswood. Emergency services, including police and ambulance, were called to Kirkton Avenue at around 3pm yesterday afternoon. The man was sadly pronounced dead at the scene. Police confirmed the incident late last night and said the officer still remained at the scene at around 10.30pm. A fourth spokesperson said, Officers and emergency services were called after a man fell from a building in Kirkton Avenue, Glasgow, 
on Wednesday, November the 10th, 2021. He was pronounced dead at the scene. It is believed that there are no suspicious circumstances surrounding the death. That was a report by Lauren Brownlee. From the Glasgow Times, Thursday the 11th of November 2021, from the news section, Rebel Rebel Glasgow boss ends 14-year city centre stay due to World War Z conditions. By Ruth Souter. A renowned Glasgow barber has cited drugs misuse and antisocial behaviour in the city centre as the reason that led him to close his shutters for good. Instead of grief, Alan Findlay felt a wave of relief earlier this month when he locked the doors of Ripple Revel in Union Street for the last time. The 48-year-old, who also has shops in Finiston and in Stirling, opened his first businesses in the city centre 14 years ago. But, after facing daily battles and witnessing the area rapidly deteriorate, Alan took the decision to tell his customers the barbers would no longer be taking clients. He said, During the pandemic, there was an endless list of problems for us. There were daily running battles in both lockdowns. I was there refurbishing the shop every day. In that time, I had my shutters damaged, which cost me around £500. People were smashing bottles over each other's heads on the street in broad daylight and there was a lot of fighting. At some stage, you would have thought they were filming World War Z with the amount of conflict that was going on. When lockdown was announced last year, hundreds of rough sleepers were brought in off the streets to help slow the spread of COVID-19. With temporary accommodation across the city filling up, many were placed into hotels by Glasgow City Council. Alan says that the complex challenges faced by those living with addictions in a nearby hotel led to the living and shopping standards on the street dropping. The local authority insists that it remains committed to liaising with businesses and hotel owners while those who were put out in temporary accommodation during lockdown are now being moved on into new homes. Putting 40 people with drug problems in one area is not going to help them, he said. It has made other problems for businesses and for people who shop and work in the city centre. Eventually, when we opened back up after lockdown, it became a daily case of kicking people out of my doorway who were selling drugs. The pandemic seemed to be the catalyst for the problems. Trying to run a business in the midst of chaos was so stressful. Coming to work and wondering, what the hell am I going to have to deal with today, was a daily thought. A recent incident involving a resident from the hotel saw Union Street cordoned off for four hours, subsequently costing Alan around £500 in lost appointments. And only last month, an attack outside Rebel Rebel led to the man being hospitalised with serious injuries. Alan said, He had his top off and there was blood all over the place, and myself and my customers saw it. It wasn't nice for them. The police came in and the whole street was cordoned off again. That was another couple of hundred pounds lost. In the last two years, there were hardly any officers to be seen, but as soon as COP26 arrives, they're patrolling the building. The reputation of the street started to make people stay away, and therefore footfall was, de- footfall was decreasing. It's not really an area I want to be associated with my brand anymore because of the deterioration. The business owner believes that drug misuse and antisocial behaviour along Union Street City could have been dealt with at the time of the pandemic, but he argues that issues slipped through the hands of the authorities. 
Alan from Black Hall said, I could understand how difficult it is for the council to deal with antisocial behaviour and drugs misuse, but I don't think they have looked at the big picture. You balance it up and you think, how much money has been spent on this problem? You look at the ambulance service, the policing, courts and prison service, who have to deal with the outcome of the problems that arise from putting people into hotels. To me, it lacks ambition from the council, police and social services, as they don't seem to be connected in trying to resolve these issues. On reflection, Alan has described his last few years of trade in the city centre as a dark chapel chapter for Rebel Rebel, as he focuses his attention on his other businesses. He said, The problems could have been fixed, but it's too late for me now, and I'm glad I'm away from it because it was a dark chapter in Rebel Rebel's history, and in my life as well. I think if you had asked me five years ago how we would feel about closing up, I'd have been really sad. But after everything we have been through in these last few years, I feel relief more than anything else. It was a case of, why am I suffering? Let's get out of here. I have never seen Glasgow have such bad social problems as what it does now. I have really seen the deterioration of the street go rapidly downhill, and I have a good gauge of that because I have worked in the city for so long. I have no doubt it will recover one day, but it is a question of when and how much money will be thrown at it to help it survive. Glasgow City Council said the process of moving the homeless from temporary hotels and into permanent homes remains ongoing as accommodation becomes available. A spokesperson for Glasgow's Homeless Service said, The global pandemic has been tough on everyone, including homeless people who are among the most vulnerable in society. Hotel accommodation was used in a bid to protect homeless people from a potentially lethal virus and enable them to socially distance, something that could not be done in hostels. We've now secured new homes for hundreds of people who have been moved out of hotels and this process continues as more accommodation becomes available. Addictions treatment and support services actually expanded during the pandemic, leading to Glasgow's Homeless Health and Asylum Team winning national recognition last week in the form of prestigious Scottish Health Award for expanding services and increasing face-to-face contact with service users during lockdown. City centre services, including Police Scotland and hotel owners, liaise constantly with businesses and anyone with concerns about antisocial behaviour should report them to the police. And that article was then exclusive by Ruth Sutter. This article is from the Glasgow Times. Date 12th November 2021 from the Lifestyle section. Edinburgh Christmas Market 2021. Where? Opening dates and times. By Sophie Parsons. Christmas is on the horizon bringing with it Edinburgh's famous Christmas markets after a two-year hiatus. The pandemic may have put a halt to the annual markets last year, but this year they're due back in all their festive glory. Edinburgh's markets are famous and see thousands of people flock to Prince's Street Gardens to get in on the action. This year will be no different, So here's everything you need to know about the Edinburgh Christmas Markets 2021. Edinburgh Christmas Market Dates and Opening Times 2021 There are various markets across the city which have slightly different dates and opening times. The West Princess Street Gardens Market 
will open on Friday, November 19th and run until Saturday, January 1st, operating between the hours of 10am and 10pm. The George Street event will also open on Friday, November 19th until Saturday, January 2nd, from the hours of 10am to 10pm. Meanwhile, the East Princess Street Gardens Market will open at lunchtime on Saturday, November 20th. Where are the different Christmas markets? There are markets in three locations in Edinburgh. The West Princess Street Gardens Market is accessible from the Mound, Princess Street and Kingstables Road. The George Street Market will take place just up the road on George Street, while the East Princess Street Gardens Market can be accessed from Princess Street and Market Street. Where can I park for the Edinburgh Christmas Markets? If you're attending the West Princess Street Gardens or East Princess Street Gardens Markets, there is pay and display available on Frederick Street, George Street, Hanover Street and Waterloo Street. For the George Street Market, pay and display parking is available on Charlotte Square, Frederick Street, George Street and Hanover Street. How else can I travel to the Edinburgh Christmas Markets? There are plenty of transport options to Edinburgh Christmas Markets that don't require a car. Waverley train station is located within a 10 minute walk of all three markets, as is the Edinburgh bus station. What will feature at the Edinburgh Christmas Markets? At West Princess Street Gardens, there will be 15 market stalls, 10 fairground rides, a bar and the information point and box office. The East Princess Street Gardens will feature 62 market stalls, the big wheel, the double carousel, a bar, a box office and information point and toilets. George Street will host an ice rink, three market stalls and a bar. That article was by Sophie Parsons. This article is from The National, date 12th November 2021, from the Culture section. Scottish Book of the Year Award goes to Mayflies by Andrew O'Hagan by Richard Mason. A book by Glasgow-born author with its story rooted in the 1980s has been named the Waterstones Scottish Book of the Year for 2021. Mayflies is a deeply personal book for author Andrew O'Hagan with inspiration drawn from close and enduring bonds of his youth and the soundtrack that accompanied them. O'Hagan tells a poignant, tender and funny tale of the importance of friendship in the journey through life. Mayflies has become a favourite of Waterston's booksellers since his publication and was the company's Scottish Book of the Month in June this year. O'Hagan said, I am truly delighted that Mayflies has been selected by Waterston's as its Scottish Book of the Year. For an author, one of the great joys is to see a book being taken up by individual shops and booksellers, making every effort to put it into the hands of customers. This novel is so personal to me and the reaction of readers has been overwhelming. 
I feel a huge sense of gratitude to all Bookstones, Waterstones booksellers in Scotland. Waterstones offers a special edition of Mayflies, containing an exclusive essay by O'Hagan called The Jukebox, which outlines his inspiration behind the novel. Angie Crawford, Waterstones Scottish buying manager, said, Akin to a football game, Mayflies is a novel of two parts. The first half is a rollick through the 80s and explores the friendships we cement in our teenage years. The second half takes those friendships and tests them to the limit. Funny and deeply moving, this novel is a masterpiece. A love letter to music growing up in 80s Scotland and being real. A truly unforgettable read. Waterston's Scottish Book of the Year specifically champions books by authors based in Scotland or titles that have a strong Scottish setting. Previous recipients include Shuggy Bain by Douglas Stewart, 2020, Now We Shall Be Entirely Free by Andrew Miller, 2019, The House Between the Tides by Sarah Main, 2018, The Other Mrs Walker, by Mary Paulson Ellis, 2017. His Bloody Project, by Graham McRae Burnett, 2016. And Sunset Song, by Lewis Grassett Gibbon, 2015. That article was by Richard Mason. You're listening to the Glasgow Times as published on Friday the 12th of November, 2021. News. Story of Take the High Road's Gwyneth Guthrie as Tributes Paid by Martin Williams, Senior News Reporter. Tributes have been paid to soap star Gwyneth Guthrie, known to millions as the Take the High Road busybody Mrs Mack, who has died at the age of 84. The Ayrshire-born actress, who admitted that landing the role was a fluke but went on to become one of the best-known stars of the soap for 20 years, passed away peacefully and surrounded by loved ones. The classic soap which ran from 1980 to 2003, and Mrs Mack's antics reached a new audience during the pandemic when the STV player started showing episodes from the start. Every Sunday morning during the summer of last year, another five episodes of the drama serial were released, with 1,517 in total. The soap was set in the fictional community of Glengarach, but was filmed in Luss on the shores of Loch Lomond. A statement from her family read, It is with a heavy heart we announce the passing of our amazing mum, Gwyneth Guthrie. She passed peacefully on Tuesday, November the 9th, at home and surrounded by her loving family. She will be playing to her next audience in heaven. Married in 1959 to John Borland, who ran his family shop business, they lived in a farmhouse near Kilmarnock and had three daughters, Karen, Debbie and Alwyn, he passed away in 2018. Bobby Hain, managing director of broadcast at STV, paid tribute to the actress saying, We at STV are so saddened to hear the news about Gwyneth Guthrie. For 20 years, Gwyneth played the iconic character of Mrs Mack in Take the High Road, bringing her own wonderful comic timing and dramatic flair which made her beloved across the UK. Our thoughts and sympathies are with her family at this sad time. As all 1,517 soap episodes were being re-shown, 
STV credited it for boosting its audience numbers and that it had been beating the BBC for viewers. Mrs Guthrie said that while she was pleased to see its re-screening again, she had never watched herself on screen and did not plan to start. I've never watched myself because I know myself and I just thought that's not for me, she said after the announcement was made. It's an honour that it's back on. It's lovely that people enjoy it so much. I'm so pleased. It means it's got a longer life than I realised and does our country no harm. The actress had said that landing the role in 1983 was a fluke after the first audition did not go well because she did not know the character was something of a battle axe. My agent said they need a nice, kind, gentle person, so I went along and did that. I got really cross when I was then told the person they were looking for, Mrs Mack, was a difficult busybody. But the show had to go on and she went to a charity shop and bought a coat and hat that she thought would suit the character and went back to ask if she could have another audition. I said, stop searching, Mrs Mack has arrived. It was a metamorphosis. The hat I found was a real cracker and I told them I wasn't going to wear any makeup or lipstick. Mrs Guthrie grew up in air, raised by her bank manager dad Jim and mum Enid, along with little sister Anne. She said she remembered always wanting to be an actress. She worked in radio from around the age of 12, trained at the Royal Scottish Academy of Music and Drama and became adept at different voices, from regional accents to being able to sound like a child. In other work, Mrs Guthrie played Rick Mayo's mum in Kevin Turvey, The Man Behind the Green Door. She also sat next to Charlie Sheen in makeup when she had a role as a kilt shop manager in his Glasgow filmed movie Post Mortem. It was in 1983 that she landed the role that turned her from a jobbing actress to one of TV's most formidable and memorable soap characters, and it was for that that she was continually recognised. As well as playing the role of Mrs Mack, she also played her sister Florence in the show. Last year, she said she still received letters from fans across the world, and there were royal fans of her performance as the Queen and late Queen Mum were also keen viewers of the soap. It was a good advertisement for Scotland, as it showed what a beautiful place it is and has given people a lot of happiness, she told the Daily Record. Ian Gordon, general manager of the Pavilion Theatre in Glasgow, where Mrs Guthrie was a regular performer, said... It is very sad news to hear of Gwyneth Guthrie's passing. She was one of the real all-round great Scottish actresses, a real funny woman to work with, who knew exactly how to put a character together on stage. Personally, I learned a lot from her over the years and enjoyed the time working with her. I remember a show where she came on stage, sat in a chair and got a huge laughter without even saying a word. Thinking of it still makes me laugh. Condolences to all the family, friends and fans. Rest in peace, Gwyneth. It was a pleasure to know, work and learn from you. This article was by Martin Williams. From the Glasgow Times, Monday the 15th of November 2021, from the news section, Amber Lauer warns of looming long-term financial crisis that could hit Glasgow families in poverty. Report by Lauren Gilmore. A charity has warned that they have seen increasing numbers of families in Glasgow struggling financially as they launched their winter fundraising campaign. Scottish children's charity Aberlour say it has seen more families tipped into poverty accessing their service. Claire Young, Aberlour service manager, 
Glasgow Family Support Service says, Life isn't easy right now and families are finding it hard to provide even the basic essentials for their children. It's just not right that the families will be facing second hard, dark winter in a row. Aberlour provides urgent assistance for families who need to help right now, but we are also very aware of the long-term impact poverty will have on children's education, mental health and future prospects. The charity will today launch their winter campaign called Poverty to Hope, which will raise vital funds for children and families in need for what they warn will be a bleak winter. A survey undertaken by the organisation found that 7 in 10 parents are concerned about their children's future chances, with more than half, 55%, anxious about their children staying up to date at school. Meanwhile, 60% of parents are worried about their children's mental health. Family support workers who work for Aberlour reported a rising number of children missing out on life experiences, wearing inadequate clothing, not sure where the next meal is coming from, afraid to put the heating on and fears around the long-term effects on children's mental health and education. Sally Ann Kelly, Aberlour Chief Executive, says, Over the past decade, the number of children living in poverty has continued to rise and we have seen a corresponding rise in stress amongst struggling families. Then the pandemic hit and brought health, social and economic challenges. It's been a perfect storm. Families who are already struggling are at breaking point and as we've seen from the research, parents are most concerned about their family's finances and the mental health and future ch- chances of their children. Aberlour is committed to supporting families in the long term. We stand by children and families for as long as they need us and that can be often for many years. We strive to op- provide a beacon of hope for their future. We've launched our Poverty to Hope appeal to launch awareness of the desperate situation thousands of children and families are facing right now. We are asking the public to donate what they can this Christmas so that we can continue to offer long-term support and hope to more children and their families. And that report was by Lauren Gilmore. From the Glasgow Times, Monday the 15th of November 2021, from the news section, Bridge Street, Cambus Lang, Affordable houses completed outside Glasgow by Sarah Pacciaroni. An affordable housing development has been completed in the outskirts of Glasgow. Developers have announced today that they have delivered the housing complex in Bridge Street, Cambus Lang, to Social Landlord Link Group. The development by GR Group consists of 86 one and two bedroom flats as well as a selection of two and three bedroom terraced and semi-detached houses, including eight wheelchair accessible properties. With 125 parking spaces and a children's play park, the project has been hailed as a huge milestone by developers, as most of the work took place in the midst of the pandemic. Andrew Dallas, project director for the GR Group, said, We are excited for the residents of Bridge Street to move in and create new memories now the development has been completed. Our team has done a fantastic job throughout the last 18 months, handling everything professionally and quickly without affecting the integrity of the project. We are thrilled to have once again worked alongside Link Group to facilitate more high quality affordable housing within Canvas Lang and we look forward to continuing to work together in future. Colin Kul- Kulross, 
Link Group Commercial Director said, Working with our partners, we overcame the challenges of COVID-19 restrictions to complete this development and are delighted to see the differences modern affordable homes are already making to people's lives. Link Group plans to deliver 3,381 affordable, high-quality homes over the next five years. And that piece was by Sarah Pacciaroni. From the Glasgow Times, Monday the 15th of November 2021, from the news section, Cedar Court, Glasgow high-rise flats grab COP26 praise for Green Project. Report by Sarah Pacciaroni. Three of Glasgow's most well-known high-rise blocks have attracted international praise for their improved environmental performance during COP26. Queen's Cross Housing Association's 314 homes at Cedar Court in Woodside were renovated to address fuel poverty. Since the completion of the project, the property's energy demand has been slashed by 80% according to developers. Widower George McGavigan, 62, has lived at Cedar Court for 11 years in a three-bedroom apartment with his four children, Shelley, 23, Duncan, 20, Liam, 18, and Alexandria, 15. George said, The refurbishment has really improved the place. I haven't switched on my heating for two years, so there's just no need. It has had a huge impact on bills. I used to have mould in the bathroom, and that's gone. The project's success has attracted international attention through the summit, with delegates from Belgium visiting the buildings to learn about their environmental performance. Maxine Couvreur, Trade and Investment Councillor at UK Embassy of Belgium, said, It is a priority for our government to make the buildings industry more sustainable. It is also a priority to make our existing buildings more efficient. We are very impressed by the work that's been done here at Queen's Cross, and believe it to be industry-based practice and will be taking many lessons away from the work that's been done here. The £16 million project involved installation of low-energy lighting, new insulation, modern controllable heating and hot water systems, and triple glazed windows. Queen's Cross Director of Poverty, Enterprise and Regeneration, Rona Anderson, said, Our objective was to transform them into some of our most desirable homes to improve residents' lives and enhance the city skyline, and their investment has paid off. The refurbishment, designed and managed by Collective Architecture, has also picked up an Architects Journal Retrofit Award. Project architect Rupert Daly said, By retrofitting rather than demolishing, the whole life carbon footprint of these buildings is likely to be closer to net zero than most new builds. Retaining and retrofitting an existing building is always more sustainable and preferable to rebuilding one if, at the same time, the energy usage can be reduced through fabric improvement. He added, about 80% of buildings in Scotland are still going to be in use in 2050, so if we're going to get our building stock to net zero, what already exists has to be retrofitted and done well. It is better for the environment to use what is there rather than to demolish it and start again. And that piece was by Sarah Pacciaroni. From the Glasgow Times, Monday the 15th of November 2021, from the news section, Glasgow's Southside Charity turns plastic toys into homeware items. By Esther Tarnay. A 
community group based in Glasgow Southside is collecting plastic toys to turn them into new homeware items. Part of Govanhill Bath Community Trust, the UpHub accepts donations of old children's toys from the community and turns them into new household items. These upcycled candle holders, trays and plant pots are then put up for sale on the organisation's website. The UpHub prides itself in creating 100% recycled items and therefore reducing plastic that would otherwise go to a landfill and reducing waste. Their activity, they say, is quite unique to Glasgow, but they're part of a global effort to reduce plastic misuse. Wathy Blades Barrett, project manager of the UpHub, said, We can recycle any toy apart from really small action figures or anything similar. But the toys we mainly work with are garden slides, little kitchen sets, dollhouses, seesaws, basically any plastic toys. The items are first cleaned, deconstructed, and then the plastic is ground into tiny bits, which are later used to make new objects by melting or casting. Beyond plastic, the organisation recycles and upcycles other materials, such as textiles and wood. If you would like to check out their shop, you can do so online. And that piece was by Esther Tanrai. Evening Times, November 15. Lifestyle. Remembering the Glasgow shoemaker who founded Quarriers as Charity Mark's 150th anniversary. Report by Anne Fodringham. William Quarrier was only eight years old when he started work as an apprentice shoemaker in Glasgow. His father had died and he had to support his family. Gradually, he built up a business and became a successful shoe merchant with several shops in the city. One night in 1864, William met a boy selling matches on the street. He was crying because some older boys had stolen them and now he would have no money. William decided that now he was no longer poor, he would put his own money and skills to good use to help other young people. In our sister newspaper, The Herald, in August 1864, William announced his intention to start a shoe black brigade for children living on the streets and called for the editor and other gentlemen in the city to support him. In almost every street of our city are to be found youth who have none to care for them and possessing all the elements of industry and perseverance, he wrote, adding that while the scheme might not make much revenue, if it fed, clothed and educated 40 destitute youths, preserving them from the vices that surround them and making them useful members of society, I say that the result would transcend any pecuniary aid that might be given to it. The scheme was set up, and boys went out cleaning shoes on street corners, keeping some of the money they earned, and using the rest to replenish brushes and polish. Similar initiatives with newsboys and a parcel brigade followed. In 1871, 150 years ago this week, William Quarrier opened Renfrew Lane Homes for Orphaned, 
and destitute children living in Glasgow. Quarriers would go on to become the largest provider of residential care to children in Western Europe. Over the first 100 years of its operation, as many as 40,000 children were supported, many in Quarriers village in Bridge of Weir, where 50 cottages were built for children who were looked after by house parents. The village grew to include a school, workshops, Mount Zion Church, and a training ship where boys could learn skills for a career in the Navy. There are some dark chapters in the Quarrier's history. Recently, abuse of children while in the organisation's care during the 50s, 60s and 70s came to light. And the charity has also apologised to more than 7,000 people who were sent to Canada and Australia as children between 1872 and 1938. William died in October 1903 and his wife Isabella passed away the following year. The loss was deeply mourned by everyone at what was initially called the Orphan Homes of Scotland before changing to Quarriers in 1958. The couple are buried in the cemetery at Mount Zion Church. Quarriers now supports more than 5,000 people across Scotland. In 2013, the William Quarrier Scottish Epilepsy Centre, the only residential assessment and treatment centre in Scotland for adults with epilepsy, opened in Govan. Report by Anne Fotheringham. Evening Times, November 16. Lifestyle, Memories. Glasgow's meadowside granary dominated Partick's skyline for almost 100 years by Dr Irene O'Brien of Glasgow City Archives. The meadowside granary dominated the Partick skyline for almost a century. On the north bank of the River Clyde, it was built on the site of the former meadowside football ground the home of Partick Football Club from 1897 to 1908. The first part of what became a very large granary was built in 1911 to 1913 at a cost of £130,000. Both it and the adjacent Meadowside Quay were erected for the Clyde Navigation Trust by the city engineer William Alston. Brick built, the granary had 13 storeys and 13 bays. The building and subways were furnished with electric light and the whole machinery inside and outside was operated by electricity. It adjoined Castlebank Street from which access for carts was obtained and there was also a connection for traffic by rail. Meadowside opened formally on May 7, 1914. After opening, it became the most important grain store in the United Kingdom during World War I. The granary was first extended in 1937, 
when an eastern extension added 21 bays to the complex. The building was massively extended in the 1960s by the Clyde Navigation Trust successor, the Clyde Port Authority, when two additional granaries were built to the west of the original. The second extension in 1960 cost three million pounds and added 500,000 tonnes of capacity to double the existing storage. The fourth and final building was completed in 1967 and added a further 80,000 tonnes at a cost of £1.5 million. High-level gantries were added to link the buildings. Originally, the granary used mechanised buckets to offload grain from the ships tied up beside them, but these were replaced with a suction system which could move larger amounts more quickly. When completed, the Meadowside complex was the largest grain storage facility in the UK and the largest brick building in Europe, with more than 5 million bricks used in its construction. The impressive series of four interlinked brick buildings continued to dominate the Patek horizon. However, while the Upper Clyde remained a thriving port in the 1960s, shipping declined in the 70s and 80s. Meadowside was closed in 1988 and finally demolished in 2002. There were no explosives used to bring it down as there were too many busy roads and the Clyde Tunnel nearby. Instead, giant machines smashed away at them until only a pile of rubble remained. Port operator Clydeport was taken over in 2003 by the Peel Group, who subsequently used the land for the first phase of the Glasgow Harbour Regeneration Project. The site of the granary is now occupied by residential apartments and the Glasgow skyline has changed forever. Evening Times, November 15. Opinion. Mike Daly says, We need to maintain face-to-face -face money advice services in Glasgow. Concerns have been expressed by money advisors in England that face-to-face F2F free debt advice could reduce by up to 50% following new funding arrangements. More services are to be offered over the phone or online, which may mean fewer advisors in local communities. While the Scottish Government believes people should be able to choose whether they access help through F2F, phone or online services, Glasgow City Council, the GCC, will be undertaking a review of the funding it provides to the free advice sector. Last year, GCC cut funding to Glasgow's law centres, CABX and money advice agencies by one third. The original plan of axing 50% of grants was ditched 
after a last-minute U-turn. The provision of more remote advice is attractive because it's cheaper than F2F. But is that a good reason to lose our capacity for F2F client appointments? Even 20 months into the pandemic, there's still very little free F2F money, welfare or legal advice taking place across Scotland. My concern is we have no idea how many people have disengaged from support and advice services during the pandemic. As far as I'm aware, no one is researching these areas of unmet need and the impact this is having on difficult to reach clients and those with complex needs. Why not? What is abundantly clear is the loss of F2F advice will have the greatest impact on the most vulnerable members of our communities. Violence against women is on the rise and seeking help remotely at home can be impractical in a controlling and abusive relationship. The police recorded 62,907 incidents of domestic abuse in 2019-2020, an increase of 4% compared to the year before. For Lorna Walker, legal partner at Govan Law Centre, it is essential that we create safe spaces for women to obtain free and confidential advice and representation. She says, We recently launched our Women's Rights Project for Women Facing Homelessness and Domestic Abuse. We are based at the Access Hub Simon Community in Argyll Street every Thursday, 2 to 4 p.m. And since we have started this outreach, we have been able to help hard-to-reach women who would not normally approach a solicitor. Our services need to be flexible as we aim to empower and help as many women as possible to know their rights and improve their situation. Face-to-face -face contact allows us to build confidence and trust much quicker. Remote advice can be a major barrier for those with poor literacy or English language skills. Rachel Moon is the senior solicitor at Govanhill Law Centre and explained why some of her clients require F2F appointments. She says, Last week in Govanhill, we had a Roma Romanian family come to the law centre as they had been told they'd been illegally renting their property. They didn't speak English and they couldn't read or write. For the very most vulnerable in our society, those with no literacy, no English, no family or monetary support and a history of discrimination, they need a physical place to go, to see a real person, to hand over their eviction documents. It may seem basic, but it is the very tenet of a client casework. And we must remember those people who cannot phone, zoom or scan documents.
Remote advice services can be inaccessible for those with a mental illness. I spoke with a local authority money advisor who had helped a single parent with two young children who struggled to answer the phone because of her mental health problems. The council advisor explained she was unable to operate her phone. She wasn't able to access her universal credit journal to update it and often both she and her children spent evenings after school in a home without heating or light or food. Even though I made referrals to other heating specialists and benefit advisors, they all came back saying they couldn't contact her. It was only through my persistence in calling her multiple times over months, I was gradually able to provide her with some support. The truth is most other services just closed the referral as there was no engagement. Alan McIntosh operates a FCA approved service through AdviceScotland.com. Alan cannot foresee any time in the future that we will be able to do without F2F services for some people. He says, even after the technological advances we have made through COVID, there are still significant numbers of people we can't help. This can be due to the complexity of their cases, their mental and physical health, and the fact they struggle to meaningfully engage using technology. If it wasn't for the face-to-face -face services provided by law centres, CABX, and local authorities, many people would not be able to access services. Without F2F support, some people will never engage with remote services. They will remain an invisible, uncounted statistic. Their human misery won't be virtual though, says Mike Daly. From the Glasgow Times, Wednesday the 17th of November 2021, from the news section, Could new drug Demimisatstat halt spread of triple negative breast cancer? By Helen McArdle, health correspondent. A new cancer study in Glasgow could pave the way to a treatment to stop the growth of an aggressive form of breast cancer, which is more common in younger women. Scientists from the city's Beetson Institute for Cancer Research are set to investigate whether the drug Devimistat could be used in patients with triple negative breast cancer. More than 700 women a year in Scotland are diagnosed with a rarer form of the disease, but currently treatment options are mostly limited to a combination of surgery, chemotherapy and radiotherapy. Younger women and black women also make up a disproportionate share of diagnoses. It is thought that Devimistat which has already been explored as a possible th therapy for pancreatic cancer and relapsed leukaemia, could target protein molecules known as PDH, which encourages breast cancer cells to spread to other parts of the body where the disease becomes incurable. The novel approach will be tested on mice in a trial funded by Breast Cancer Now. Professor Sarah Zanivan, who will lead the research, said it has the potential to halt the growth of triple negative breast cancer. She added, 
We know that breast cancer cells communicate with each other, non-cancer cells nearby, which helps breast cancer tumours grow and survive. It's really important that we continue to increase our understanding of this activity, as it may uncover much-needed much new ways to treat the disease. Professor Zanivan previously discovered that breast cancer-associated fibroblasts, CAFs, found in triple-negative breast cancer, can support cancer cell growth by making high amounts of PDH. CAFs are a type of non-cancer cell found in large numbers inside breast tumours, which can generate molecules that influence the behaviour of cancer cells, for example, encouraging them to grow or to migrate to other organs. The new study will explore how PDH in particular helps triple negative breast cancer cells to spread and whether defimostats can be used to attack it. Around 15% of breast cancer cases are triple negative. The term refers to a diverse group of breast cancers that lack the three molecules normally used to classify the disease, the estrogen receptor, ER, progesterone receptor, PR, and human epidermal growth factor receptor, HUR2. While these molecules have been used successfully to develop a variety of targeted treatments for other types of breast cancer, their absence in triple negative breast cancer means options are limited to treatments with more grueling side effects, which either directly target cancer cells or affect all rapidly growing cells in the body. Devimistat would work by curbing the mechanisms which enable non-cancer cells to support cancer growth without actually destroying any cells. Dr. Katrina Temichinichi, Senior Researcher Communications Manager at Breast Cancer Now, said, The knowledge we're gaining from Professor Zanivan's research gives us real hope for the future. With a greater understanding of how triple negative breast cancer cells grow and survive, we can find new ways to stop breast cancer tumours spreading and becoming incurable. Dr. Temichiante also appealed for donations to help fund new and ongoing research after the pandemic slashed fundraising income. Jeanette Campbell from Glasgow was just 44 when she was diagnosed with triple negative breast cancer in 2009. My oncologist said the cancer would come back within a year and I wouldn't survive five more years, said Mrs Campbell. I was told my only hope was chemotherapy and that there were no other options after that. The way I was told about triple negative breast cancer felt like a death sentence. In 2012, a PAT scan detected cancer in her chest wall and in 2014, routine tests revealed that the disease had spread to her lungs. She said, I didn't know that cancer moving to another part of the body made it terminal, but after the cancer came back I was told it is, and that I would need to be in chemo for the rest of my life. Triple negative breast cancer is a very scary cancer. The survival rate is so low, I was diagnosed 12 years ago, but sometimes I feel like I shouldn't be here. Generally, I feel positive day to day, but I have been through a lot of hospital appointments with different girls with triple negative who are no longer here. This research from Breast Cancer Now would give me a lot of hope when I was first diagnosed. Triple negative breast cancer is so aggressive that I was prepared for the cancer to come back, but the more research done into this disease, the better. Rather than just relying on chemotherapy, we need more options for women who are diagnosed, 
and hopefully this research can find new ways to treat the disease. And that was an article by our health correspondent, Helen McArdle. From the Glasgow Times, Wednesday the 17th of November 2021, from the news section, Former Glasgow Orange Order HQ to be turned into offices by Clyde Gateway in Brighton. This article is by Lauren Gilmore. Plans have been submitted to Glasgow City Council to turn the former home of the Orange Order in Scotland into offices. Clyde Gateway, a regeneration charity, have applied for planning permission to extend their existing office space at Orr Street in Bridgeton into the nearby Olympia House, which was previously the headquarters of the Orange Order. It is understood the building was put up for sale last year after the organisation told members it was no longer fit for purpose. Artists' impressions of the new offices show a full refurbishment. The design statement submitted by developers says that the space will be open and flexible, with partitions being removed to allow for open plan office space. External windows and doors are set to be replaced with upgrades to the courtyard to allow for easier access for members of the public. Developers will also look to restore original features, such as blocked off windows and wind catchers on the roof. Plans are yet to be considered by council bosses. A spokesperson for Clyde Gateway said, Clyde Gateway has made long-term investments in Brixton Cross and we wish to retain and upgrade this building in the conservation area. Subject to planning, we hope to develop office space that will attract new businesses and jobs to the area. And that article is by Lauren Gilmore. From the Glasgow Times, Wednesday the 17th of November 2021, in the news section, Glasgow Art Auction to Raise Funds for Children with Autism by Anne Fotheringham. The artworks are bold, bright and beautiful, just like the idea which brought them together from all over the world. Art for Africa was the brainchild of actor and writer Ronnie Bridges, who died of lung cancer in 2019. The charity auction, which this year includes more than 100 works from artists as diverse as Peter Housen, John Byrne and Elizabeth Kopjar, is live tomorrow, Thursday, November the 18th, in partnership with McTeers. Money raised will help build the Sunflower Sanctuary, a project aimed at supporting children with autism in Uganda. In Uganda, many of these children are walked up, chained up, and have never seen the light of day, says Michaela, a former Glasgow Times Scotswoman of the Year finalist. Many believe they are cursed by the devil. We have uncovered more than 50 families so far and have been working with them, trying to bring about much-needed change. She adds, Proceeds from Art for Africa will help us build the Sunflower Sanctuary, which will be a holistic centre for children and families affected by autism and disabilities. Ronnie and Michaela set up Starchild to build a school for the creative arts in Uganda, where Mike... Michaela's late brother Frankie was born. Frankie died in a house fire, aged just 26, when a earlier started a blaze in his block of flats in Govan Hill. Just a few moments before his death, he had begun to look into his background and Michaela was determined to finish the task. Having traced Frankie's family to Lubero, where she had an emotional meeting with his brother, Michaela returned home. But horrified by the levels of poverty she had seen, she set up the charity Starchild to help the community build a brighter future for its children. 
Arts for Africa was Roni's idea and his passion. With the help of friends and local businesses, he encouraged artists to donate artworks for auction, raising thousands of pounds to build the school for Uganda's poorest children. As well as building the school itself, the charity supported a local women's health project and provided mosquito nets, sanitary products for teenage girls and microscopes for science classes. The Sunflower Sanctuary, named after Ronnie's favourite flower, is Starchild's latest project. With support from her friend Mo Roxmore, Michaela has collected 119 pieces of art for this year's auction, some as far afield as Russia. Michaela says, I've been overwhelmed by the response from the artists. Their generosity and support has been wonderful. Just all about the artists I contacted offered us art. Also, McTears didn't hesitate to offer us the support once again. They have been a tremendous support to Starchild over the years. I knew Ronnie would be as thrilled and overwhelmed as I am. She smiles. We even have a few portrait pieces of Ronnie and Sunflowers, which were his favourite. Art for Africa takes place at McTears Fine Auctioneers on Miko Wood Road from 2pm to 5pm on November the 18th. Paintings available include works by Peter Housen, Gordon Wilson, Alexander Miller, Frank McCadden, John Byrne, Leticia Gilbard, Mo Roxmuir, Lynn Howarth and many more. The live auction is an opportunity to meet the trustees, the artists and other interested individuals and to hear about our work in Uganda whilst enjoying some refreshments and the excitement of the day, says Michaela. It's also a chance to purchase some wonderful art without a gallery price tag and it's all going to a great cause. And that piece was by Anne Fotheringham. From the Glasgow Times, Wednesday the 17th of November 2021, from the news section. Glasgow City Council's credit card spending revealed. This article is an exclusive by Maxie MacArthur. Glasgow Council staff have raked up almost £10,000 credit card bill. From October 2020 to September this year, Glasgow City Council's total spend on its corporate credits was £9,553.39. A total of £7,109.03 came from the Financial Services Department and a further £2,444.36 from the Chief Executive's Office. A breakdown of figures shows travel and accommodation costs that racked up the most charges with £4,725.73 spent, while conferences and meetings followed behind with £2,173.30. Facebook advertising attributed to £1,489.96 of the card's expenditure and £954.40 and was spent in the floral arrangements such as bouquets and wreaths for special occasions, birthdays and anniversaries for Glaswegians. Gift vouchers totaling £210 were also brought, bought to help spread a little Christmas cheer for children in kinship care. Bosses at the local authority insisted very little of its overall expenditure was done via credit card. However, in some instances, it was the most appropriate method of payment. The coronavirus pandemic has increased the use of card payments dramatically throughout the country, with many businesses looking to avoid cash altogether.
However, the George Square Based Council has fought to steadily decrease its, its use since freaking up eye-watering bills of more than £100,000 around a decade ago. Credit card spending for the council has fluctuated over the years. However, its current rate is far far cry from the previous bill seen in the early 2010s. We saw the likes of city parking rack up more than £120,000 on the plastic cards. It is not known how many council staff have access to a credit card, but it's understood to be a limited amount. And that piece was an exclusive by Maxine MacArthur. From the Glasgow Times, Wednesday the 17th of November 2021, from the news section, Glasgow MLC's residents save items from landfill this Christmas. This article is an exclusive by Sarah Pacciaroni. People with experience of homelessness are learning to create new products out of reclaimed wood to reduce landfill waste in the wake of COP26. MLC Glasgow residents who also work in the charities, shops and social enterprises, are turning discarded objects into unique furniture and Christmas decorations. Some of the upcycled items include decorative Christmas trees, festive stars and coffee tables from pallets, as well as reclaimed whiskey barrel planters. Nigel Higgins is an Emmers resident taking part in the project. Originally from Ireland, he was brought up in Wigan, Lancashire. After dealing with an addiction for 15 years, he attended a rehabilitation programme in Motherwell. He said, This will definitely help me in the future. You know, we're making things like furniture for people's gardens out of bed slats and stuff. It's really, really good and I've learned numerous skills that I didn't have before. Nigel was homeless for six months before receiving help at Emma's Glasgow, where he now works as a van driver and shop assistant. It's been amazing, you know, the help and support that I receive have been just exceptional, he added. I feel privileged to be a part of this. Director of MLS Glasgow Richard Allwood said, The idea is that by repairing and upscaling items, we are giving them a new life and at the same time reducing landfill waste. It's also giving us something that we can sell in the shops, which is unique and also environmentally friendly. The Upcycling Workshop is organised by the Homeless Charity in partnership with Maryhill Community Woodworking Project, Boomerang. Every week, four Emmers residents will attend the training for a full day under the supervision of a trained Boomerang Workshop Manager. He added, It's all part of our core values, protecting the environment while helping our, our residents gain new skills and doing meaningful work. It could be a mix of people that already have some expertise, but also, it means anybody moving in that doesn't have the confidence or the skills to do any of these things will be able to learn them. The project is funded through the Scottish Government's Adapt and Thrive grant. That article was an exclusive by Syria Pacharoni. From the Glasgow Times, Wednesday the 17th of November 2021, from the news section, Glasgow Little Store set to reopen on Jamaica Street by Nicole Mitchell. A city centre little store is set to reopen following a full modernisation and extension. The supermarket on Jamaica Street will reopen to customers on Thursday, November the 25th at the 8am. As part of the company's ongoing expansion and regeneration plans, the store will now feature a sizeable in-store bakery and customer toilets. During the first week of opening, customers at the city centre branch 
will be able to find a number of exclusive deals, including a water jet foster for $9.99 on the opening day and a $12.99 crepe maker on Saturday, November the 27th. Lidl GB's regional head of property, Gordon Rafferty, said, We would like to thank all of those who have played a part in enhancing the shopping experience for our Lidl store on Glasgow's Jamaica Street. It's fantastic to be able to offer the local community an even greater range of our high-quality and affordable produce. We look forward to welcoming our loyal customers back. The store's opening times will be between 8am to 8pm, Monday to Sunday. And that report was by Nicole Mitchell. From the Glasgow Times, Wednesday the 17th of November 2021, from the news section, Glasgow pharmacies to offer contraceptive mini-pill. Article by Maxine MacArthur Glasgow women will be able to access a temporary three-month supply of the mini-pill from community pharmacies. The national rollout of the progestogen-only pill follows a successful pilot in pharmacies across Lothian and Tayside. This step aims to complement existing services currently providing contraception to widen access and bridge the gap between emergency contraception and the use of longer-term contraception. Patients will still be advised to contact their own GP practice or sexual health service for ongoing contraception. Ensuring women have the support they need to manage and improve their own health, including providing them with a choice of contraceptive options, is central to the Scottish Government's Women's Health Plan and is the first step in a health and wellbeing service in community pharmacies. Minister for Public Health and Women's Health Marie Todd said, Our UK leading women's health plan demonstrates our ambition and determination to see a change for women in Scotland, for their health and for their role in society. It's crucial that we recognise the importance of women in society and a key part of this is promising prioritising the health of women. It has positive impact for us all. We want Scotland to be a world leader when it comes to women's health. The introduction of this service will increase the choice for women in the ways in which they can access contraception. I would also like to give the recognition to pharmacists and pharmacy teams across Scotland who continue to play a fundamental role in helping patients and the wider NHS team by ensuring people get the right care in the right place despite the additional pressures they face. Further enhancing the service the community pharmacy network offer through bridging contraception demonstrates its valuable role in our communities and in helping to address inequalities in health that women are facing. Until now, pharmacies were only able to supply emergency contraception with women directed to GP services for long-term solutions. However, it is hoped the move will offer women more choice over their reproductive health. Professor Nicola Steedman Deputy Chief Medical Officer said, This is not intended to replace existing services providing contraception, but to widen access and bridge the gap between emergency contraception and longer-term contraception choices for women. Patients will be advised by pharmacy teams to speak to their GP or local sexual and reproductive health service for ongoing contraception after receiving this temporary supply. And that piece was by Maxine MacArthur. Evening Times November 17. Lifestyle. New Glaswegian noir books have roots in real-life experience of crime and justice system. 
Report by Anne Fotheringham. Alan Nicholl can still remember the shock felt across a city rocked by the story of Peter Manuel. Manuel, responsible for a string of murders, was eventually caught and found guilty of seven killings in May 1958. He was hanged at Berlini. He says, I remember my parents talking about his trial in the salt market's North Court. They spoke in hushed voices because it was so shocking. Alan, who is from Anisland, went on to write a book about the devastating case. Manuel, Scotland's first serial killer, was published in 2008. I had previously written about Archibald Hall, the monster butler, and I am encouraged by the growing trend towards Glasgow crime being properly explored, be it factual or otherwise, he explains. The city has certainly produced some remarkable crime stories. Former Procurator Fiscal Allen and former criminal lawyer Charles Sharkey have both written books which have been published by Ringwood Publishing based on their experiences on opposing sides of the Scottish justice system. The two men appear at a special event at Arlington Baths on Friday at 7pm to talk with a live and online audience about their books and Glasgow crime in fiction and reality. Alan's book, Liberation, is a fictionalised retelling of a notorious 1950s murder case in which a Gorbals police officer killed a local woman while on duty. Charles P. Sharkey's debut crime novel, Clutching at Straws, is a thrilling and original piece of Glaswegian noir following Detective Frank Dorsey as he investigates a string of mysterious murders linked to rival gangs in the city. Alan is aware of the painful parallels between the case featured in his book and the recent murder of Sarah Everard by a serving Metropolitan Police Officer. He explains, I tried to stick to the facts where known. That the murderer was a policeman is bad enough, although unwittingly and sadly topical, but he was married with a young family and a member of the Plymouth Brethren. I read the story a while ago, then researched it in the Mitchell Library using old newspapers. What made it stand out though was that Robertson, the accused, seems to have deliberately ruined his chances of acquittal by refusing to acknowledge he had been having an affair with the murdered woman when he was giving evidence on his own behalf. To me, it sounded like something from Confessions of a Justified Sinner. His solicitor, Lawrence Dowdle, decided that Robertson's behaviour in the witness box was designed to save his wife and family from the public shame of it all, which I query, since he regarded himself as one of the elect and was going to heaven regardless of what happened in an earthly courtroom. 
Charles has previously written three acclaimed historical novels. Dark Loch, about the effect of the First World War on a Scottish crafting community. The Volunteer, about the Belfast Troubles. And Memoirs of Franz Schreiber, about a young man and his mother in interwar Berlin. Clutching at Straws is his first crime novel, following leads on the old gangs of Glasgow's past and a new foreign group trying to stake its territory. The central character, Dorsey, must connect the dots between the murders, an anonymous religious message each victim received, and the gangland rivalries, while also dealing with the rising tensions among his own police department. As a criminal lawyer in Glasgow for more than 30 years, Charles worked on thousands of cases, including the high-profile Fenwick Moore's murder, which was the first Scottish murder case for nearly a hundred years to proceed without the body of the victim ever being found. Recently featured in Times Past, it was the grim tale of Paul Thorne, a murdered drugs courier whose killers, including gang leader John Paul McFadgen, buried his body on the Fenwick Moors in 1988. Charles was also one of the defending solicitors in the triple murder case infamously named the House of Blood in Glasgow's Cross Hill. He says, the years of dealing with so many criminal cases have been invaluable to me as a crime writer. I write fiction, but I try to base my stories on what is the gritty reality of serious crime in Glasgow. During my time as a defence lawyer, I have read thousands of statements and dealt with numerous identification parades and police interviews. I also studied forensic medicine in my honours year at university, which is another area that is so important to any modern crime story. Clutching at Straws is a novel that deals with the negative impact of illegal drugs and the misery it causes so many, while the organised crime gangs who supply the drugs get rich. For both men, Glasgow is a huge influence in their stories. Says Charles, I have not only tried to make the Glasgow characters feel real, I have also made a point of making the city of Glasgow a character. I have tried to make the story feel like a real Glasgow crime novel. Report by Anne Fotheringham. Evening Times, November 17. Opinion. Glasgow, good cop or bad cop? Let the visitors decide. By the secret Glasgow taxi driver. So what to talk about in this week's column? COP26 or the men's national football team? COP, they think it's all over, it is now. Scotland, they think it's Moldova, it's Chisinau. One talked about stopping eating bacon, the other brought it home. 
That was a poor Danish pun, I admit. So let my next quote be from someone who really could write. Oh, what some power the gifty gives to see ourselves as others see us. So why bring this quote up? Well, one thing Cop did is reveal what visitors make of Glasgow, its people, and even me and my fellow drivers. Here's a few of my favourites written online during COP about us humble Glasgow taxi drivers. My housemate just told me about her Glaswegian taxi driver who's had his eyes opened during COP26, so has spent his time off this week helping plant seagrass meadows off the coast of Scotland and reading up on net zero versus zero carbon. And another one. Glaswegian taxi drivers are the best. They'll know your life story no matter how long or short the journey and never underestimate the impact that conversation is having. And another. The best. My friend found a gem who helped us out all week. He cares so much about the COP26 outcome, goes on vacation Sunday, has two kids, gave me mortgage advice, and knows my cat's name, face with tears of joy, Glasgow hospitality. And another. I just rode with that same taxi driver last night. It was such a highlight of this COP26 for me. I had some br absolutely brilliant chats with Glasgow taxi drivers about climate. And another. Glasgow's taxi drivers are awesome, always interesting and informed chats about health. I also found the taxi drivers in Glasgow amazingly engaged in the news of the day. And finally, one from slightly closer to home. We love Glasgow taxis. They are Patek Thistle partners and have a Fab Thistle branded taxi as well as lovely drivers. And that's from the chairman of the Jags no less. Thanks Jackie. So there you have it. Turns out visitors continue to be bowled over by their welcome to Glasgow. Except the Danish football team. Sorry lads. On that and inspired by the Bart, I might have an early go at writing and strumming a 2022 World Cup song. Now, where did I put my Qatar? Stay safe, says the secret Glasgow taxi driver. And that was this week's Glasgow Times News podcast, normally recorded in our studio at the Bishop Briggs Media Centre, currently recorded from our volunteers' homes with the publisher's kind permission. Thanks for listening.